We are beginning a new series. Well, we're not beginning it, we're continuing a new series, but it started last week. It's a new series looking at the book of Galatians together. And the plan is that we are going to read sections of it week by week and just unpack them and see what God might want to say to us through it. Now, Galatians is a book that I've loved for a long time, and it resonates with me for two reasons. Um, The first is that the first Sunday message, the first time I ever stood on a a stage and spoke on a Sunday in front of some people in a church, I spoke um, from a passage in Galatians. In fact, um, I was given three Sundays to do three little sections in Galatians. That's the first time that I ever preached. And I'm so grateful for that opportunity. It was the first commentary I ever bought because I was doing those. Um, It was a risk. I probably wasn't particularly good. I was um, a young woman, just 21 at the time, and my then pastor of my church entrusted me to look at three bits of Galatians Sunday by Sunday. So whenever I speak from Galatians or think about Galatians, I remember that. I remember those people who um, championed me and my gifts, and I want to be that person who champions others and their gifts, whatever they may be. And the other reason it resonates is because so many of the themes that are found in the book of Galatians connect with me and my own personal faith story. Galatians is a book about grace and freedom and being saved by grace alone, about walking in step with the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. And they're all themes that really resonate with my own story of coming to faith. So I'm really looking forward to speaking today, but also hearing week by week what each of our preaching team are going to bring as we dig into this book together. So we're going to begin by uh, reading the passage. Ken kicked it off for us last week, looking at the first half of chapter 1, and we're going to look at the second half today. If you want to grab a Bible, it's on page 1168, Galatians 1, 11 to 24. It'll be here on the screen as well, but do follow it. It's much uh, better if you can to follow where we're going by looking at a Bible too on your phone or from the chairs. So Galatians 1 verse 11, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And that was the first bit that um, Andy spoke about when the children were in earlier. For you have heard of my previous way of life in in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praised God because of me. 
One of the things that happens regularly in church life is that people share their story of faith, their testimony, it's sometimes called. We make space for someone to come and share what God has done in their life, the story of how they met Jesus and came to faith. It often happens when someone is baptized. That's often a time when we'll hear someone's story, but other times as well. And it's just wonderful when that happens. Why is it that we love a personal faith story? What is it about hearing someone's story that makes such a difference to us and that does us good? Well, various things, I think. First of all, someone's own story is more than just a neutral account of events. It's the impact of those events that we hear. And it's more than just an abstract account. It's a real person standing right in front of us, sharing the difference that Jesus made. And it's more than just that person's story, because their story resonates with our story. And it's a different story, but it connects with us. And it builds faith and confidence in God as we're reminded of the different ways that he works in people's lives. He's alive and very much at work today. Here in this passage that we've read this morning, we find Paul sharing his story, sharing his testimony. This bit of the letter that we're looking at and the bit following, which Andy's going to look at next week, is often called the autobiographical section of the epistle. Because here Paul tells the story of his conversion and his early Christian experience of following Jesus. Now, this isn't unusual for Paul. There are various places in the New Testament where he pauses and tells the account of how he met Jesus. There are a number of other places in the New Testament where that happens, where Paul tells the story of his conversion experience. And the reason that Paul shares his story here in some detail is because of the reason for writing the letter in the first place. Paul was an apostle, a missionary, who travelled around planting churches. And after he'd planted a church and left the region, he would continue to supervise that new congregation through his letters. And one of those letters is this one, where he writes to Christians in the area of uh, Galatia in Asia Minor. And in this letter, Paul addresses something that he feels really strongly about. In fact, he uses really strong language in Galatians. It's a bit ouchy when you read it. There's some shocking language that he uses in parts. And he feels it strongly. And it's to do with social and racial division. So the first Christians in Jerusalem were Jewish. But as the gospel spread, um, an increasing number of non-Jews called Gentiles began to find faith. Brilliant. But some teachers that have become to known as Judaizers were insisting that these Gentiles, these non-Jews, it was great that they'd found faith in Jesus. You know, happy days, this is good news. But you must now also adhere to all the Jewish practices if you want to be properly accepted. You found Jesus, brilliant. Now you must go and be circumcised. You found Jesus, brilliant. Now you must go and adhere to all the Jewish dietary laws and so on. And Paul says over and over again in this letter that nothing needs to be added to the gospel. And he uses strong language. And he wants to endorse and enforce and remind them of his authority as an apostle to say that. Now for us today, it's not circumcision and food laws, but the reminder that the gospel of grace is enough on its own without any add-ons, lest anybody should tell you so, 
is a really important message for us all. And this is why we hear Paul's story. It's part of the evidence for the gospel of grace that's given by Jesus that underpins everything. That Paul's got the authority to say that. That the gospel of grace of Jesus Christ is absolutely enough and it underpins everything. As we look through the passage together and see what Paul chooses to emphasize, there are some lessons for us as we revisit this idea that the gospel alone is enough, that it underpins everything else. In any uh, construction or renovation project, the process of underpinning is used to strengthen the foundation of a building. If the foundation, foundation isn't strong enough, if it's not stable enough, The idea of underpinning has come to mean ideas that form the very basis of something. And in this case, Paul says it's grace. It is grace, which is the firm foundation that everything else is built on, that underpins everything else. Paul is really keen to stress to his readers that this underpinning gospel on which he builds his life, the initiative for that, comes from God. As Andy said earlier, it comes from above, from Jesus himself. We live in a uh, culture that is absolutely obsessed with self. It's all about me. I went to um, Canada last year when I was on sabbatical, and it was, you know, it was such a blessing to have that time and that space and to have a kind of trip of a lifetime was a brilliant thing. And as part of that, we spent a few days at Niagara Falls, I don't know how many of you have been to Niagara Falls. It's just this incredible natural wonder. And it was uh, wonderful to go and see God's creation at its best. Here we are. It's always good to prove you've been there. Um, Although it's a bit dark. But there we are in front of Niagara Falls. Now, I've got to tell you that taking that photo was quite difficult. It was quite difficult for several reasons. Mostly because it was so crowded with hordes and hordes of people. So it's beautiful, but there are people everywhere all the time, early in the morning until late at night. And do you know what most people are doing when they're standing by Niagara Falls? They're taking selfies. So not just, you know, please could you take a photo of us, which is a bit of a pain enough, and getting in people's way like we were there, but proper, you know, arms outstretched, crouching in, trying to take a good selfie. There were hordes of people with their back to Niagara Falls, spending most of their time trying to get the right angle with their elbow to get the right shot. Now, I tried. Is anybody else hopeless at taking selfies? I just can't do it. Look at this. (laughs) That is like double fail, because you can't see me or Niagara Falls. How is that even possible? Seriously, I I mean, I'm never going to go to there ever again, probably, and that's what I've got to show for it anyway. I'll go back to the family photo. So all of these people are standing in front of Niagara Falls taking, um, taking selfies. Now, the thing about that is, of course, instead of appreciating the view, instead of appreciating the one who created the view, you are spending your time putting yourself in centre stage in front of that view and not giving much time to looking at it at all. Instead of appreciating that view, the priority instead is how can I get myself at the right angle, with the right pout in the center of this screen. On Instagram at the moment, over 90 million photos are currently posted with the hashtag me. Living in an age that is all about putting yourself first 
means that the attention is always about us. And this is the polar opposite of what Paul does in this section of the letter in Galatians. All of it is weighted, the whole letter, all of it is weighted towards God. He points to God as the one who took the initiative. It's like he's looking at Niagara Falls and he's saying in his letter, look at the one who created this. I don't even want to be in the picture, let alone center stage. Verse 11, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Paul is basically refusing here any idea that the gospel came from his own ideas, his own clever thinking or consideration. He says he received it directly from Jesus. And if you look at the following sections from verse 13, he describes how hostile he was to the church and Christianity. He wanted to persecute it, to destroy it. There was no long process of consideration, weighing up the options, thinking whether he'd got it wrong or should change his mind. Instead, it was from Jesus himself. And similarly, at verse 16, he didn't receive the gospel from other leaders in Jerusalem. I didn't consult any human being. All of this eliminates claims like, well, that's just what Paul thinks. He's able to put his stamp of authority on this letter, on this church, and on us as churches. His testimony establishes his authority as a gospel teacher and reminds the Galatians and reminds us that God gets the glory. He gets the glory for his initiative. And there's a challenge there for us all as we go out into our frontline places tomorrow to remember that the gospel of grace is about divine initiative. And part of our story, surely as we share bits of our story with others in our workplace, in our homes, with our neighbours, at the gym, has got to be that actually it's God that does it, that did it, that he gets the glory and the credit. Not me, but him. That would be a good mantra this week. Not me, but him. And to be confident in the authority of the gospel that we have to share that it really is the gospel of Jesus and nothing else comes close. If you were here last week, you might be thinking that some of these aspects, some of the things Paul says, some of this message sounds a bit similar uh, to what we talked about in the first half of chapter one. And as we've said, this letter all the way through shows that the gospel of grace underpins everything, every part of the Christian life. And if Paul keeps coming back to it, so should we. If Paul keeps coming back to grace, then so should we. Paul had done so many terrible things. He had persecuted the church intensely. You know, by the time they had met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he had killed so many Christians and was on his way to arrest and kill so many more. He was filled with hate. But verse 15, God who set me apart from my mother's room and called me by his grace in the midst of hate, and a man sit on one course, Paul says, but God called me by his grace. Paul's testimony is a powerful witness to the very heartbeat of Christianity, which is grace. The undeserved kindness of God, the free gift of God's love, that he loves us and he saves us and we cannot earn it and we cannot strive to please him. Some aspects of my own 
upbringing have meant that coming to understand God's grace has been a long journey. Paul had a Damascus Road experience where Jesus revealed himself to him. Many of us have a long, windy, non-Damascus Road experience, don't we, in our journey of finding Jesus. And afterwards, coming to understand truly who he is and what he's done for us. But because it's been windy, and because there's some aspects of my upbringing that I've struggled to understand grace, it, it also means it's become especially important to me, as I said at the beginning. I grew up in an environment where... I actually assumed a lot of responsibility from a very young age. Things were uh, complicated, it was quite messy, a lot of my upbringing and at home. And I was the good girl who took care of things and made everything okay, the reliable one, from a very young age. And add to that that my family were um, very poor, we had very, very little money, and I won a scholarship to a fee-paying school. And we couldn't afford to even buy the uniform, despite not having to pay the fees. And I, without any external pressure from any teachers, who were just loving and brilliant, um, soaked up this expectation that somehow I didn't quite deserve it. And I wasn't quite like everybody else. And so because of that, I had to strive that bit harder to prove myself and to prove that I was worthy of this that I'd received. So my home life and my school life, despite being around people who loved and cared for me, meant that actually from a very young age, I grew to believe that you had to behave in a certain way and achieve certain things if you wanted to be loved and accepted and feel worthwhile. That was the way to get on in life, to be in control of things, to be reliable, to be as perfect as possible and to keep everybody happy. Well, that's exhausting, isn't it? And there's absolutely no way to live. And of course, it is the exact opposite of grace, the exact opposite of grace. Grace is so wildly inappropriate because it says you are loved before you do anything with no strings attached, no duty or rules to achieve it. You are loved whoever you are. You are loved whatever you do. God doesn't want our drivenness or our perfectionism or our reliability, or our noble ways. He wants our dependence. So imagine for somebody like me, hearing the gospel of grace, that I didn't have to strive or please anybody anymore. It was like a cold drink on a very, very hot day. And they began an amazing story of transformation, understanding who I was in Jesus, what he had done, and who I could be. And that I no longer needed to prove anything no longer needed anybody else's approval because I already had the approval of the one that mattered. And it was a long healing journey and absolutely transforming. Now, you might have heard me um, share snippets of that story before in various situations and places. Um, I'm not going to apologize for that because if Paul keeps coming back to grace, so should we. If you don't know that you can be loved by the God of the universe as you are, if you don't know that, you can. If I could get to know that, with my turbulent background, you know, I wasn't born a minister. If I could get to know that, it is available for absolutely everybody. And if you do know that, we're to revisit it and remind ourselves of it and come back to it and tell ourselves the story of it and tell others the story of it. 
because it's the thing that underpins everything and it's the thing that changes everything. As we do come back to grace over and over again, again, we will see over and over again that grace always makes a difference. It always makes a difference, every single time. It always has an impact. Paul sums up this bit of his letter by saying, verse 24, that the Christians in Jerusalem, they didn't know him. They heard about what had happened to this man who was persecuting all the Christians. And it says they praise God because of me, hearing the story of his conversion. The change when someone meets Jesus can be dramatic or gradually transforming, but transforming nevertheless. And it's Jesus that they're pointed to when they notice that, not us. The ministry of the church is to receive and give away grace. That is what we're here for. That's why we're gathered here today. That's why our alternative gatherings are meeting out and about today, serving lunch, doing fun activities at a sports centre with kids. That's why we're out in our frontline places, serving God at work or at home. That's why our midweek activities happen, whether it's small groups or toddler groups. It's so that we can receive and give away grace. That's what the church is about. Philip Yancey said this, the world can do almost anything as well or better than the church. You don't need to be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or even heal the sick. There's only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. Where else can the world go to find grace? I want to finish by showing a clip that I have also showed before. And again, I'm not sorry, because it, um, it illustrates grace so well. And it's just really good for us, isn't it, to revisit what underpins our faith, be reminded of it and be grateful for it. Have a look at this. We can get ourselves into such a mess. We can feel that we are covered from top to bottom in mud. And God, our Father, comes along. And instead of anger and punishment and judgment, he gets out his hosepipe. And with joy and love, he cleans us up. And I tell you, it feels so good to be a messed up kid who has been cleaned up by their loving Father. That is grace. That is grace, and it's what underpins our faith. And we are to remind ourselves of it and revel in it and remember that the initiative of it comes from Jesus, that it's him, not us, and that it is transforming and that it always makes a difference. Amen.